This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Most of the time when you're arguing with someone, they're usually someone who thinks they're doing something good and just disagrees with you on how to get there. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you're well aware that some of the most vexing political controversies, policy questions, and cultural crises of our current moment all trace their orbit around the singular legal and cultural gravity of our First Amendment and the radical enlightenment wisdom enshrined in it. What has really been going on across college campuses? And what's at stake for wider society outside the confines of higher education? Is the colloquial public square, practically speaking, now privately held by a handful of giants in the tech industry? How has the idea of free speech become so shockingly misunderstood that one of our major political parties can persuade a large swath of the country that a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol is legitimate political discourse? There is really only one person in particular who I've been looking forward to wading into this with on the podcast, and my guest today is Greg Lukianoff. Greg is a New York Times bestselling author. He earned his law degree from Stanford, and he is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, also known as FIRE. He's testified before both the U.S. House and Senate about free speech issues on America's college campuses. Greg has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, so many others. And he's appeared on TV shows and radio programs ranging from CBS Evening News, The Today Show, to NPR's Morning Edition. And along with his colleague, NYU professor Jonathan Haidt, he co-authored what is one of my favorite books of the last five years, The Coddling of the American Mind. And it was for that book, in 2008, he became the first ever recipient of the Playboy Foundation's Freedom of Expression Award. Greg, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Politicology. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we begin with a little bit of background? For those who don't know you, those who don't know FIRE's work, why don't you tell us, first of all, where does FIRE sit in the landscape of First Amendment, uh, uh, the, the legal world of First Amendment? And what is your personal background as it relates to uh, politics, freedom of expression? Etc. Um, you know, uh, my my personal uh, politics is something I have to explain a lot these days because of a uh, what I called a, a slow motion train wreck uh, that we saw coming when I was interning at the ACLU of Northern California back in 1999. I am a political liberal. I still am a political liberal. I still am a Democrat. Um, I actually my pedigree is is embarrassingly <laughs> like it's a lefty stereotype. You know, I did uh, I worked for two years in D.C. Uh, with inner city high school kids trying to teach them, uh, trying to mentor them in an environmental justice program called Environment Mentors. You know, it's a cute, cute wordplay. Um, I then when I was in law school, I went off and did um, refugee law in uh, in Eastern Europe. I didn't. I took every First Amendment class Stanford offered. I also took every human rights class uh, Stanford uh, offered. Um, and you know, I didn't 
I think I want, I knew I wanted to do first amendment work. I was the weird person who, who, you know, loved uh, freedom of speech. I'm a first generation American. So that's not unusual for those of us who either have, you know, parents who fled tyranny as my dad did, my grandfather did uh, flee, flee uh, Russia. Um, and, uh, and my mother is British and growing up in, in an environment where uh, you had such different norms, one really emphasizing politeness, one really emphasizing truthfulness. Um, it made me really understand the value of a, just a blanket rule on freedom of speech. So I graduated from, from Stanford having hyper-specialized in First Amendment law. When I ran out of First Amendment classes, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty to give you an idea of like mm. how much th- this, this wow. was my thing. And I was um, uh, sought, I, I was hunted down by Harvey Silverglade, the co-founder of this new organization, then called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And I became the first legal director. I joined in 2001. And even back then, I was, and, I, and I've been studying free speech for years at that point, I was shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you said on, on a college campus. And I, and I have to say, since 2015, and particularly since 2020, I have never seen anything uh, like this. Uh, people are, are claiming that uh, you still have people on Twitter claiming that, that cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, doesn't exist. Meanwhile, the numbers that we're looking at in terms of professors getting fired or punished, it has no analog, at least in the, not the 19, until the 1930s. So we're going through a genuine crisis when it comes to the number of professors getting punished or fired for what they say, including tenured professors, by the way. And I still have to, uh, have to convince people that this is happening at all. I think when most Americans think of free speech, uh, the first organization and challenges and defense of free speech in the legal world, the first organization that comes to mind is the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Um, and the ACLU has recently been criticized for laying down the traditional torch that they've carried. I know, you know, from listening to you in other places, you're, you're hesitant to criticize the SLU. You work together with them. Um, can you explain the difference between fire and what the ACLU does, uh, in the, in the legal landscape and whether or not you're, you're sort of still involved in the same, uh, nonpartisan defense of free speech? So, you know, and, and thank you for picking up on the fact that I don't, you know, I don't want to turn this into fire sure. versus the ACLU, yeah. but I am happy to talk about what makes us different for sure. Um, and one of the things that does make us different, and we launched, we, we used to be the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, but on June 6, we announced that we were now the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression as a way of saying that we weren't just going to do campus anymore. I mean, to a degree, we'd expanded beyond campus already. We were doing some K-12 through work. We have an amazing research department. But we wanted to make it official and start doing massive public education about not just free speech, but free speech culture. Um, it's that embrace of free speech culture that actually does make us kind of unique, period. Go, going beyond First Amendment, but advocating for norms like hearing people out, believing that everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I'd say the the big the two big things that really make us different from the ACLU is the ACLU has 19 practice areas. Um, it, it, it free speech is, has become a relatively small part of what it does. I think at one point a couple of years ago that the national ACLU only had four First Amendment attorneys. I'm in a much smaller organization, and we have you know, dozens of, of, of First Amendment uh, attorneys. So we're specializing, and I and I think specializing is is, is very important to, to to keep you and having that as part of, to prevent mission drift, for example. But the other thing that makes us just fundamentally different, and from and I think this makes us different from 
any nonprofit that exists today. Um, and I worked at countless, uh, not countless, I, I worked at, you know, half a dozen different nonprofits before I um, got to uh, uh, got to fire. And even though I worked for, for some that were, you know, nominally nonpartisan, everybody on staff was either um, liberal, a Democrat, or Green Party, uh, or even further to the left somehow. Everyone. Um, and I got to fire, and I suddenly was part of a team that was basically 50-50 left-right, and it was great. Um, we kept each other honest. We pointed out things that we didn't think of. And I, I realized I came in with a, with some real um, elite law school prejudices. I'm, I've been an atheist in seventh grade, and I assumed that the um, evangelical Christian who worked on staff would be the most closed-minded. She was the most curious person about everybody on staff. And she was completely comfortable with us, you know, going out, you know, drinking and dancing and arguing about the existence of God. And I realized that FIRE was trying to do something very special. It was founded by a uh, right-leaning uh, a libertarian named Alan Charles Coors, one of the great um, scholars of the Enlightenment, and a left-leaning uh, uh, civil liberties a, a lawyer, uh, my, my, <laughs> my honorary dad, Harvey Silverglade, who I, who I adore. And we really tried to follow that model. So, you know, David French was president for a bit. It was great to have a Republican and a Democrat. We really try to keep the, the value of having staff who actually vote for different candidates. I think it really will help us have the drift. And if you're wondering kind of like what we're afraid of, what we're afraid ha- is, happens to some of these organizations, there's an article in The Intercept by a journalist named Ryan Grimm that's called The Elephant in the Zoom. And it talks about how some of the politics that me and Height saw going on on campus when it hit organizations was creating a kind of uh, paralysis in a lot of the purely progressive organizations, uh, partially because it t- there tended to be a sort of inward focus on the politics within the office as opposed to focusing outward. Um, and, and trying to solve, and it's an amazing, it's amazing and, and very um, uh, sobering article. Meanwhile, Height and I had been had spent, you know, um, since 2018, being told by heads of of of, um, of, found, of foundations, of heads of nonprofits, of head of, of of even for-profit businesses, that this dynamic had absolutely changed. That that organizations were being paralyzed by by a. Um, a trend in which relatively small um, uh, abrasions that happen among that would have been treated once as relatively small abrasions between um, um, employees is now treated as something that immediately has to go to HR. So I th- and I think one of the things that gives us some amount of inoculation against that is by having political diversity um, within the organization itself. And believe it or not, despite stereotypes, the fire staff actually does lean decidedly more to the left than to the right. But we value hearing from the other side, and I think it keeps us healthy. Sounds like something that is uh, sorely lacking from uh, a lot of the political dialogue I see now, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. So the genesis of this conversation is really FIRE's pivot out of the educational environment and into broader society. Before we get to the broader society part of this, uh, and I want to talk about your $75 million expansion, and we're, we're going to talk about some of the ad campaigns that you've launched, before we do that, I want to talk about um, the, some of the biggest lessons of coddling, uh, the book Coddling in the American Mind that you wrote with Jonathan Haidt. Um, what has been going on throughout college campuses since 2014? What happened that year? How have you been involved? And, and, and that will help, I think, listeners understand why you're now expanding your focus outside of the higher education environment, because, because I think a lot of the problems have spilled out 
of those walls, and we're now dealing with them in society at large. So can you give us a primer on the lessons from that book? And in particular, I, I, one of the things that really stood out to me from that book was the concept of the telos of an institution and what that has historically been for universities and, uh, and, and how that has begun to change and what the consequences of that have been. So I lay all that at your feet. And I think a level set on all of this would be really, really helpful. We can dig into some of the details afterward, but um, give folks a, a way to enter the rest of the conversation by understanding what you did in coddling. I think the most important place to begin uh, with uh, coddling the American mind is first to say, I don't like the title. I fought the title. Um, I wanted to call it disempowered because I really wanted to emphasize that I think we're giving, um, we're teaching, uh, uh, foolishly teaching uh, young people that the intellectual, the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. Now, where did this idea come from? It came from me getting suicidally depressed in 2007. Um, I was hospitalized as a danger to myself. Um, this was when I had been president of FIRE, moved from legal director to president. And I'd been uh, president in two, by 2007 for about two years. It was completely exhausting. Um, I was in the culture war all the time. Um, you know, even dating was difficult in some ways because, you know, the girl uh, that I, I dated most seriously that year, she loved it when I defended liberals, but hated it when I defended conservatives, which, you know, I, I, uh, I wasn't going to apologize for, but it was, it could be very alienating. So I, I got really bad. Um, and I talk about it in greater detail than I have ever talked to anyone about it in the book for the first time, um, about why I was hospitalized. Cause I was, you know, I was going, I was getting all this stuff together to go kill myself. Um, and you know, after that crisis, as I was recovering, I moved to New York city, um, where, where I have a lot more support and friends. Uh, from Philadelphia, which is where the headquarters of FIRE is, and they, they let me work remotely. I started doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know CBT. Uh, it's amazing. It, I think it's actually a very profound thing to discover that that you know, the idea that rationality can actually help save your, your happiness is something that philosophers speculated on going all the way back. But you have to practice it. You have to actually start looking at your exaggerated ideas, your catastrophizing, your overgeneralizing, your binary thinking, your mind reading, and get in the habit of, of writing it down and talking back to those. And I always stress habit because you can know this stuff intellectually. It'll do absolutely no good. It has to become automatic. And it took me about nine months of, of doing this, and I thought I wasn't getting anywhere. And then suddenly these voices, you know, like, you know, the you know, very frank about it. People have schema. People have um, uh, ideas of who they are in their head. And for those of us who experience anxiety and depression, it's usually pretty negative. And mine was, you know, like you're broken, you know, like, like that you, you can't handle, you know, life essentially. And I would hear these voices in my head for the first time and, I, and they weren't convincing anymore all of a sudden. And I remember looking out to campuses where I was looking at all this ridiculous behavior by, um, by administrators back then. Back then, by the way, the students were awesome on free speech. They got it better than anybody else. They got offensive comedy. They got, they got professors uh, who were provocative. They, they came to each other's defense. But, um, and I looked out and said, well, thank goodness, even though administrators seem to be teaching what are called cognitive distortions, those things like cat catastrophizing, this exaggerated thinking that can make you anxious and depressed, that the students weren't buying it. But then, like lightning struck, right at the end of 2013, but go, mostly going into 2014, you started seeing uh, a, a critical mass of students showing up on campus who were demanding new speech codes. They were demanding uh, speakers be disinvited. Uh, they started you know, demanding that professors be fired. 
Um, and this was a complete shift uh, from the way students were. And the most troubling part of it to me uh, was the fact that they were also, well, just besides the fact they were you know, bad on free speech and I'm a free speech guy, was also that they were the way they were doing it was by medicalizing it. They were saying, this person can't come to campus because usually not I will, you know, can't handle it, but like someone over here will be triggered or permanently damaged by, by that. And I, I remember thinking, whoa, wait a second. They're, those are cognitive distortions. They're, they're actually the, the, thing, the things that they're using to say that, that we have to ban this kind of speech. These are all the kind of you know, ways of looking at the world that are actually deeply unhealthy, will make you anxious and depressed. So I went to Jonathan Haidt about this. You know, I remember telling my staff about this idea, about the connection between CBT and freedom of speech and crickets. They were like, okay, Greg's weird. What is he thinking about? Um, but I told John Haidt about it and he was excited about it. And we wrote the first article. Um, and, and we joke, we wrote the first article in, um, uh, in August to, you know, pointing out that we would expect if this keeps going, that anxiety, um, and depression would go way up and, and censorship would go way up. Um, and then we solved the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well placed. <laughs> I, I love saying that because like just to point out like how futile sometimes this could be because the article i thought we were gonna get our heads chopped off because yeah. we, we were going after a lot of sacred uh sacred cows yeah. but we got a lot of actually very positive response it was a very popular article and um this was the article in the atlantic just, which was the genesis of the book right yeah it was called coddling the american mind i also objected to the title then i wanted to call it the much more boring arguing towards the misery but that at the same time that's closer to what my argument our argument actually was but then things got much worse um, on, on, on campus. So we decided to get together, write a book. I'm very proud of how the book came out um, in 2018. Uh, it, it was uh, we, it, There was a point at which I told John that we were going so deep into some of the philosophy and some of the postmodernist thought and some of the intersectionality that uh, I told him, we're, st- we're beginning to write a book that I'm not sure I'm interested in reading. Um, because it was getting too, it wasn't explaining things clearly enough. Uh, so the, the final result of it, you know, we talked about it's as if we are giving young people the worst possible advice in the world um, that, that is wrong in terms of ancient wisdom tr- traditions, that's wrong in terms of uh, modern psychological thinking, and things that we can say that if you believe them, they will probably make you miserable. Uh, and those three things we call the great untruths. And uh, we have a cute setup in the beginning that I had some fun with. Um, and those are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, something that if you actually believe can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, even though naturally humans are much more resilient than, than um, you, would un- you would guess from actually looking at the way campuses behave. It, and, and I think it's a cruel thing to tell people that they're fragile when actually people are resilient, but they might not be if they actually believe they're not. Uh, the next one is um, always trust your feelings, which sounds cute and sounds nice, but it's terrible advice. Um, so a lot, a lot of, I, I think it was Susan David. She yeah. she put it more pithily than anybody I, had ever seen. She did. Your feelings are in are information, not instructions. Data, not directives. Yeah, data, not directives. Exactly. Right. Like like basically, if you feel something, you got to think about why. Because like why you're angry right now. I mean, for me, the th- stuff that makes me angriest, I, you know, when I I, I I look to myself, I'm like, oh, I'm mad because I made a really dumb mistake. <laughs> like, the, so nothing needs to be done about this other than I have to learn to laugh at myself instead. Um, so you know, always trust your feelings. And the last one that we've seen so much of, I felt like for almost for most of the last twenty years. Fiction, um, characters on TV, uh, uh, 
it's gone in the direction of moral complexity. And, and you know, we, when Don Draper can be a hero, and Walter White can be an anti-hero, and like, um, you know, Tony Soprano, you can take seriously, even though he's an evil sociopath, that we were getting more sophisticated in our understanding of, of, of the complexity of, of, of human nature. But somehow we got back to um, a very common idea um, in human history, and we call this the third great untruth, that life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, and I think that's a very destructive thing uh, to believe. And I also think it happens to not be true. I, and I believe it or not, I do actually believe that, there, that evil exists. That there and is I think evil that and there is good. Yeah, but but most of the time when you're arguing with someone, they're 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 usually someone who thinks they're doing something good and just disagrees with you on how to get there. There's also a big difference between evil and good as phenomenal and 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 acts, right? As opposed to the intrinsic character of a of a person of an individual. And this is one of the things you mentioned: modern psychological thought that Carol Dweck's book, The Growth Mindset, right? Yeah. Really, really, uh, just laid bare for everybody it just becomes so clear the the damage that can be done when you take on an identity marker as opposed to understanding that that you can move through something behaviorally in a way that doesn't undermine or 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 threaten your identity as a human being right if you've attached your identity as a human being to uh to some particular markers or characteristics and then those things become untrue or become challenged or threatened, then you have a physiological response to, to those things. I think this is, you, you talk about this in the book a bit. Can you, can you um, unpack telos for us, the concept of telos? This is something I found really useful. John's, John's talked about it a lot too. Yeah, and, and, I, th- and I think it's a, very, it's a very lucid way of explaining it. And, and I thought this was, this was great to really you know, say it in a simple way. Is that you know, the point of a university, the, the, the telos of the university should be um, like the, uh, what it's trying to get to um, is truth. Uh, that, that essentially one of the great revelations in human history, you know, we, we call the Enlightenment the Enlightenment. Um, but uh, Yuval Harari, I thought he borrowed it from somebody else, but um, uh, said it would be better to refer to it as the discovery of ignorance because that's really more what it was. It was, it was like, wait a second, when we start testing all of these intuitions and rock solid beliefs, um, every time we test them, we're like, wait a second, we're completely wrong about this. And so the enlightenment really was start like a process of testing. Oh my God. Like it's, it it was a practicing epistemic humility. It wasn't patting, you know, there was some amount of patting yourself on the back for being clever, but it was largely about breaking things down. Um, And so the university exists to a degree because we now, we started to profoundly understand that understanding the world as it is, is an arduous, difficult, never ending process. Um, and that's surely enough work for for universities. And Height's point um, that I very much agree with, and we incorporate in the book, was that a university can choose a telos, uh, a telos of truth, um, uh, uh, or it can choose a telos of social justice. But it can't actually choose both because there are so many assumptions baked into telos that if you treat as sacred as a, in, into social justice, that if you treat as sacred, you're, you're not going to be able to test them. You're not going to be able to figure out if they're correct. Um, and that, and those, so those are incompatible. And he wanted to push for universities that were, you know, cho- choose one, decide if you're social justice or if you're truth university, then people can decide which one they want to go to. Um, you know, universities have been trying to have it both ways. And I think it's, dysfunctional. And I think when universities, and for that matter, experts, try to both 
um, stick very closely to the doctrine of, 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 of currently understood largely, you know, um, uh, by elites on the, on the left of um, social justice, uh, it undermines faith that they're going to be frank with you because like if, if they keep on coming to the conclusions that their dogma, you know, seems to indicate they have to, it's like, okay, great. That's what like people end up saying, well, that's what we thought you're going to say anyway. Um, and it's, it weirdly creates a situation where it's only when they say something that actually goes against, you know, what, what is popular in social justice circles that you actually start thinking of it like we do in law, a statement against interest that essentially it's like, oh, well, you're going to suffer from serious, uh, you know, personal sac- sacrifices like Roland Fryer did, you know, at, at Harvard. Um, in order to say that, it actually ends up imbuing it with more credibility. So there, it, 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 I think right now we're seeing an undermining of faith and authority partially because when people start getting in trouble in positions of power for their research, uh, or for what they say, because it's, you know, unpopular or considered, you know, uh, regressive, uh, it makes people um, wonder if if anyone's going to be truthful to them if, it, if, they have to, if what the truth actually ends up being something that uh, they wouldn't want to say. I, I want to give folks a, 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 a picture uh, about the firings that you mentioned, because I think there's a tendency for especially people on the left to write off the reality of sure. this uh, this trend, mostly because it is um, you know it's talked about, it's championed, and it's, uh, it's sort of uh, propagandized by a lot of toxic voices on the right. And sure. so I want to get at what's actually happening um, and and why, and that's going to help us understand the, the the broader social phenomenon. So you mentioned numbers earlier. Can you walk us through the numbers of professors who've been fired, uh, speakers who've been canceled, uh, and maybe give us a couple of examples, people on the right, people on the left, because this isn't a, an ide- this is an ideological thing, but it's happening uh, from, from regardless of your ideology, right? Um, what does that actually look like? Uh, what has the trend been from 2014 to present? And also, can you put this in the context of the expansion of the concept of harm? Um, yeah, well, so here here are our, our latest numbers in terms of what we we have a, a something called the Scholars Under Fire database, which is maintained by the uh, great Comey Frey. She's one of our, our researchers at Fire. She's amazing. Um, and what we found, so we started seeing a real uptick in professors getting fired around 2015. Your listeners, you know, might be uh, either surprised or relieved to know that some of the first cases actually involved um, the right going after uh, lefty professors um, and. A lot of these cases are. So I'll, I'll break down the numbers a little bit. We are right now at something like, uh, we are at 772 attempts to get professors fired. Most of those come from, uh, for, for what they said, uh, for what they taught, uh, for what they said extracurricularly, or what their research found. So basically all speech-related things. When I, was, uh, when I started in 2001, it was essentially unheard of for a tenured professor to get fired for... Um, uh, for what they said, uh, what, what they published, what the research said, because that's what tenure is about. That's what it was supposed to be about. Um, we're now past 40 tenured professors getting fired for that, which, which is 40 times, you know, actually infinitely greater than I thought I'd ever see. So we've got 770. That, um, and we, the, the first bad year we, uh, was 2015, and that was 38 professors targeted. Um, the highest rate we've seen is 202 
professors targeted. And this, and to break down those 770, and, by, and uh, so many of those have happened just in 20, uh, 2021 and 2020. Those are the two worst years I've seen for free speech on campus. There have been 136 uh, terminations, 121 suspensions, 79 uh, censorship events, as in things had to, were, were recalled, 53 resignations, 35 demotions, 21 retractions, and 17 mandatory sensitivity trainings. Now, to be clear, a lot of times these are uh, the, the cancellations do come from the right. So more than half. So this is the way it breaks down. It, it doesn't. It doesn't fit the stereotypes in a lot of cases. More than half, 411 out of the 721 attempts, about 53 percent, have come from individuals to the left of the uh, left of the scholar. Less than half, 33 out of 721, 43 percent, have come from individuals to the right of the scholar. Um, there were more attempts from the right in 2017, 2021, and 2020. 2022. But two-thirds of the attempts from the left are successful. So the left tends to be more successful getting professors canceled or fired, whereas less than half, which is still a relatively larger number, of attempts from the right are successful, resulting in some form of sanction. Um, and the thing is, like, I'm a First Amendment guy. I, I study this going all the way back. And when I see people on, on Twitter say, like, those are small numbers, like, you have no idea what you're talking about if you think those are small numbers. It, it, it's insane. When you look back at McCarthyism, um, we, we've scoured research that they've been working on for decades. We've been able to find about 75 to 130 uh, professors fired or punished during that time. Bad. Wow. Very bad. That's during a lot of professors. Right. Yeah. From 1947 to 1957, and are there more out there? Yes, but do we know there are more out there for us as well? We actually know that for a fact, because the cases that we're talking about in the 772, those are the ones that are in public. That, those are the ones that people have written something about. Uh, the cases that we've had fire privately, um, you know, there, there, there's many more still. So in both cases, there are cases you will never hear about. But also we know there are secret hearings, and Applebaum you know, wrote about this. Uh, so did Laura Kipnis in her book, Unwanted Advances. Even um, the, that, that book that was written by Michael Barabay and Jennifer Rubin, where they're actually calling for less academic freedom because Amy Wax and, and Bruce Gilley exist, uh, two, two conservative you know, firebrands that they, they think uh, academic freedom shouldn't, uh, shouldn't apply to them. Even they uh, agree that these, you know, the secret hearings that go on are a problem. So the number is even worse uh, then it looks. Um, and when people say like, well, th th this isn't a big deal, you have to remind them alien sedition. We used to think there was only about, uh, which is the um, uh, 1798 uh, law that basically banned uh, making fun of Congress or, uh, or the president uh, when we were afraid uh, we were going to go to war with France. Uh, a real stain on American history came coming only a handful of years after the passage of the First Amendment. We used to think there were only 15 prosecutions there. And now it looks like there was more, there was closer to 50 uh, prosecutions there. But, and it's still a, a shame, still something that we should be ashamed of, still, still something that violated our uh, our, 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 our professed norms. Um, but as terms of numbers, you know, like w what we're seeing on campus is something they're going to be studying in a hundred years, trying to figure out what on earth happened. So Greg, what is driving the cancellations? What, what, what is motivating, what's animating the students to target these professors? What is so, uh, you know, malicious about what they're saying that you would see a, a student population rise up to try and get rid of them from their campus. Is it, 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 it's just see the, the phenomenal numbers that you just walked through would indicate that there's something big happening underneath the surface. And that's what I'm trying to get at. So, so 
what harm is being done? What does harm mean? What's driving this? I, I think that what we're what we're seeing, um, you know, and, and we came up with six causal threads. You know, what what was causing, what was making the students who started to hit campus around 2014 so different? We came up with six different reasons, and we even added a seventh. Um, we talked about, you know, of course, social media is the reason why we think it was all so immediate. Um, we think uh, social media was an accelerant. It sped up trends that were that were already already brewing, um, including the next one, uh, the next causal thread, polarization. The most interesting two ones that we didn't expect uh, coming in uh, were was paranoid parenting, the kind of students who go to the elite schools that actually are. are crazily disproportionately influential to a degree that, in my opinion, they really should not be, uh, even as a graduate of one of them. Um, the, uh, the, the paranoid parenting um, uh, is strange because actually kids growing up, you know, over the last 20 years, it, childhood has been safer um, than it was, you know, 40 years ago. Um, when it, and then we talked about the most surprising one was, was finding out a lack of free play, lack of free unstructured time is actually very harmful uh, to people's development and ability to, to handle interpersonal issues. Uh, Peter Gray writes amazing stuff about this, Lenore Skenazy in her Let, Let Go project. And why campuses? Uh, one, hyper-bureaucratization. Um, you know, uh, gigantic megacorporations have different priorities, particularly when most of the staff uh, isn't, uh, aren't teachers. Um, and then the final one that the conservatives, you know, think is the most important one, and the, there's an argument for that, are new ideas of social justice. Um, and I think that a lot of these came from, uh, ultimately, they came from the university, but they came from some of the ideas and some of the departments and universities through education schools, through up through K through 12. And then when you had, uh, you know, in 20, uh, 2010, like this, this anti-bullying push, which, by the way, I am all uh, for anti-bullying. I think, I think we were much too cruel as kids, um, I, and I think that that didn't have to stay that way. Unfortunately, if badly taught, it can teach people this mentality of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. And I think that we uh, administrators in particular, college administrators, these same ones that you're paying, that, that have massively expanded, uh, and I'm talking about administrators and staff, um, over the past couple of years. I mean, employees at Yale outnumber, particularly when you count faculty, outnumber by a substantial margin students at Yale at this point. This is, this is a for real, like the administrators are almost as big as the number of students. Administrators. What do you need all those administrators for? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, th- I think the, the most offensive thing is that uh, might be re- some of it might be related to the hospital. Um, but as far as like uh, student life, when you look at the student life bureaucracy in, in California, like it's, it's completely nuts how many, uh, I mean, Harvard had almost 60 Title IX officers, uh, for, for example. So it, it really has gotten, you know, uh, out of control in terms of, uh, um, of, of an administrative blow. And, and to a degree, they're really the ones who are running the show. And I think that when you come in and have been taught, well, you believe you're being a good person if you're stopping people from being offended, if you're sort of policing offensive speech and things that violate your norms. If that's your expectation, if that's what people are saying good people do, it's not surprising that you have a lot of professors getting in trouble for violating the norms of the, of, of the younger generation. But that's the wrong way to think about higher ed. You're supposed to go in and be hyper-curious, hyper-tolerant, and always open up to the possibility that you might be wrong. And when you see, you know, what, what's happening at Yale, 
Yale earned our um, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award uh, uh, for censorship this past year, <laughs> uh, and, and, and this and this was just after me going through all the examples over the since 2015 of, of cases. And you've got cases where they're clearly, you know, getting a professor in trouble because uh, you know angered a donor. Uh, we we have another case where it was you know angered uh, at Alan Dershowitz. Um, you know, we have you have some left, you have some right. But in the law school, I mean, like the fact that you had a case where in a school of less than 700 people, a Yale Law School, more than 100 people showed up to shout down what was supposed to be a kumbaya event between a right wing lawyer who, who's presented in front of the Supreme Court and a left wing lawyer who's um, uh, presented in front of the Supreme Court. They were supposed to talk about collaboration acro- across lines of difference. And this got shouted down uh, by students. And, and my belief over over all of this is that administrators are 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 not they're not just permitting it they're encouraging this to a degree because when you look at one of the more ridiculous cases just from a couple months before at Yale Law School um there was a, a native american student um who was trying to get together a multicultural event um he did what you know, was actually one of my job in law school was what I, I got together. I, I did the thing where you get people to, together, go to the bar. Your whole job is to write funny emails. And sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't land. And he said, oh, yeah, it's going to be a total trap house um, in the in the email. Uh, and that's a that's slang for a place where you go to buy pot uh, or go to buy drugs. Um, administrators turned this into uh, that's actually uh deeply offensive because that actually comes from black slang and this is uh and you need to apologize and they they did an investigation they gave him a pre-written apology letter um and one and and it was the treatment of him was something that i'm actually really used to what i'm not as used to was a student saying no way (laughs) I'm i'm not they implied that he might get in trouble uh, with the bar, they, they they made references to the idea that he um, might not get uh, the moral. Like when you when you join when you become a lawyer, you have to have the morality committee essentially that that he might not pass that. But he he's, he stood firm, and the idea that the administrators who were really spearheaded that are I don't think they've even been punished. They shouldn't even be there. And that and there was also and by the way, these are all happening basically at the same time. Sally Sattel, um, Sally Sattel is a doctor. Um, she up, she changed her life to go live in Appalachia for a year and a half. She lives in Washington, D.C., and I ran into her one time. I was like, hey, I'm going to Appalachia. She did it to study the opioid epide- epidemic at ground zero. That is a noble thing to do. That is a brave thing to do. She did a presentation on it at Yale um, right around the same time this thing was happening um, uh, 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 with, the, with, the, with the student in the trap house situation, and only a couple months before the shutdown. And there, um, she uh, talked about how she was kind of surprised uh, to be in deeply impoverished Appalachia to find um, a guy who had a, like a $5,000 like espresso coffee machine. And she cracked a joke about it. The class claimed that that was classist and offensive. And therefore, Sally Sattel, given her regressive writing, should not be invited back. The regressive writing they're referring to is, like some other research indicates, that maybe when it comes to bad uh, health outcomes, um, uh, class, ma- uh, economic class matters more than more than race. What's amazing about this piece that they're talking about is she's absolutely clear 
that uh, that race is a factor that that that, um, that, that uh, African Americans actually you know don't get as good health care. But when you factor in uh, poverty, that seems to be the 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 thing that's even even more explanatory and an even bigger problem. Uh, thankfully, Yale stood up for Sally, uh, but it, kind of in private, and also kind of you know uh, she she. Uh, the thing is, I'm not sure if she's been canceled, but I'm not sure she's going to be invited back because she used to do this every year. And one last thing, within within a couple of months, Yale went into court. Yale has this favorite, uh, famous thing called the Woodward Report. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful statements on academic freedom. It talks about you must challenge the, un, uh, the, the unchallengeable and you must speak the unspeakable. Um, you must uh, think the unthinkable kind of, but you, you, you have to, it's this really bold statement on how, what it means to actually live the telos of truth that you have of trying to find it. And they went into court, uh, they were, they were being sued and they said, uh, and they're being called out for the contractual promises in the Woodward report. And they completely disowned it. They were kind of like, no, no, no we, that's just puffery. We don't actually, well, they mean said, that. we so don't believe just, that anymore. Yeah. In court. Yeah. They, they, they disowned the Woodward report in court. So it's just like, I don't know what to do with Yale at this point. And it is probably actually, I'd say well, like, with the exception of Yale, the most influential school in the country, and it's dysfunctional at the moment. All right. So it's it's clear there's a problem. And I think, you know, th- th- this 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 really helps to set the scene for I think the way illiberal tendencies toward free speech have now begun to propagate outside of academia. And that's what I that's what I want to get into because I think that that um, informs Fire's shift outside of academia into the broader defense of free expression, right? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and maybe we should begin with uh, one of the ads that you've, uh, that you've rolled out with um, your, your $75 million expansion. Can we play that audio? Free speech is under attack. For over 20 years, FIRE has defended free expression on college campuses, standing with students and faculty when they face censorship. Now, FIRE is expanding our mission to protect freedom of speech for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. At the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, we believe free speech makes free people. We're fighting for your rights and our culture of free expression. All right, so I'm waiting for my T-shirt to come in the mail. Um, I'm wearing a free speech makes free people t-shirt right now. <laughs> the listeners can't see that. Uh, and in the meantime, help us understand what this looks like because we've talked about academia. We've talked about professors defending uh, the right to free speech and expression on campuses. What does it look like when organizations like FIRE now says, whoa, we got to look up. We got to look around at what's happening yeah. in the country. Uh, and this phenomenon, this trend uh, needs a counter. Needs a legal. Def- needs a legal champion on the other side. What does that look like in uh, outside of academia? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's interesting. We, we we took a long time to decide that we were going to expand beyond campus. And for me, the main thing is we needed really strong coverage on campus. We needed to be pretty comprehensive before we would ever think about going beyond. And we were approached by even like the old, um, like the former executive director of the ACLU, Ira Glasser, was really urging us, you know, um, we, we had uh, Ron Collins, like a great First Amendment scholar. People were constantly coming to us saying we have to expand beyond campus. I wanted to make sure, though, that we were covering as much as we could on campus before because campus is still going to be ground zero for a lot of free speech battles. And it's where people learn and where 
of the leaders are trained. So you, we're, it will never, we'll, we'll always focus on that. But in 2019, we, we had enough um, uh, research staff to start doing a very rigorous ranking of schools according to free speech that, that, that's multivariate. We just came up with the latest one. Columbia, by the way, to my complete surprise, and I, I mean this sincerely, finished dead last. Uh-huh. Um, University of Chicago, and we didn't cheat. Like they, they earned it. They, they finished. They, they finished number one. Claremont McKenna was the top-rated um, liberal arts college, for example. Uh, Penn uh, second to last. Um, you know, so once we got there, I felt like okay, this is now we're rigorous. Now we actually have great research. We have the capacity to responsibly start doing things off campus. We thought maybe we'd wait till twenty our twenty fifth anniversary in about two years, but twenty twenty was so bad. Uh, both on on campus and off, we we realized we have to accelerate this. So we know we can't be the same kind of fire um, that we are now, where we try to help, and we really do. We try to help at least in some way every single professor who asks for our help, every single you know, person, even if it's just telling them where to get resources or sending them sending them materials. We try to do something. Um, when we're expanding the United States, you know, we're going to have to p- pick our battles because we, you know, we're about 90 people at this point, which is, you know, not small, but certainly not enough to cover, you know, all 330 million. So we decided to grow in three ways. Um, one, more research, and that's dear to my heart because I, I joke that I'm a constitutional lawyer, but due to my love of psychology, I've pretended to be fire social scientist for a long time. But now we have like real ones who are amazing. Sean Stevens, I mean, like we got a, we got a crazy good team on research. The next one uh, is uh, litigation. Um, and we're tripling the size of our litigation department. And we've been able to do some pretty cool litigation. One of the ones I'm the most proud of is actually, it is focused on higher ed. Um, but it was, uh, so uh, Ron DeSantis in uh, Florida passed this divisive concepts bill, um, and it applied to K-12 through uh, and higher ed. Now, K-12, through it gets a little more complicated from a constitutional standpoint. Legislatures usually have say in that. So that's something where it might be, you might hate it, but it might, it, it, there's a good chance it's constitutional. This is the, this is the also known as for the don't say gay bill, right? Uh, it's related to that, but it's not identical to that. Okay. Like, like they're, they're like cousins. Um, the, uh, uh, but when it comes to the, dev- the divisive, uh, concepts, when you apply it to higher ed, that's not even a hard call at all. Um, that is unconstitutional. You cannot tell people in higher ed what, what arguments they can make, what classes they can teach, what they're trying to instill in their students about, uh, race or sexuality. So that w- the, the funny thing is constitutionally, this was easy and I wanted to challenge it right away. It was surprisingly hard to get plaintiffs who, who were willing to. So we finally got uh, a student and a, and a faculty member. We, we filed, um, you know, uh, last week or two weeks ago. Um, and, you know, so that, that, that's one of our biggest, you know, uh, fights on campus. Off campus, oh my God, we have a case right now that we're involved with. It involves uh, a facility um, that uh, uh, engages in electroshock therapy for autistic kids. Um, this is ob- obviously very controversial. Now, I even know, you know, I'll leave out the, the possibility. And I know fully well that for anxiety and depression, the way they do this sometimes can actually, there are medical applications of, of this technology, but it seemed like they were using it primarily to numb kids out, which is, and I don't, we don't know this for a fact. So another organization, however, was criticizing them for using electroshock therapy on autistic kids. And they got a cease and desist letter. And it's like, okay, listen, you can debate the, the appropriateness of this. I'm, 99% sure this is 
this is a terrible idea, but you certainly have the free speech right to criticize uh, that. So that's a case we're involved with right now, um, and we're looking for new litigation cases. But the third, um, uh, the third part is, uh, and the biggest, the most ambitious part, which has always made fire different, is we want to teach, we want to remind the American public about not just free speech, but free speech culture. Um, we've been doing a massive ad campaign. Uh, we're going to try to do about $50 million worth. I am extremely proud that one of our ads that we already did involved uh, Inez Cantor Freedom um, wearing a free Tibet t-shirt, uh, talking about uh, the tyranny of Erdogan, a, a favorite villain at fire, <laughs> along with Putin um, and G. Uh, and he's wearing a free Tibet t-shirt, which I think they might have missed, to be honest. Um, and it's during the Beijing Olympics that we ran this one, um, you know, uh, tr- and trying to remind people. It was helpful to have him talk about it because just like, you know, my family, uh, if, you're, if you're an immigrant or you're first generation, you get like free speech is a different idea. It's not uh, typical in an awful lot of societies. So the biggest part of it um, that, uh, is that outreach part because we have to get and, there, and there's a point to it. It's not just consciousness raising. Uh, we know from our own polling and from other polling that most Americans love freedom of speech. Um, the ones who are the most ambivalent about it tend to be uh, millennials, frankly, between 30 and 45 um, you know, on the left. And that's a problem. I'm, 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 a, I'm a Gen Xer, but I'm close in age to, uh, to millennials, and, I, and I've seen this trend myself. And that's troubling. But people below 30 don't just don't know that much about freedom of speech. And so we're trying to, you know, we're, that research is largely devoted to doing educational materials. I'm working on a comic book, a second comic book about freedom of speech. We try to reach people and surprise them with new ways of teaching about them. But the goal in the public awareness program is to find those already existing free speech champs who have felt like they're, they're taking crazy pills, you know, like the, 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 something has just changed, get them to raise their hand and join, join us on TikTok, join us on uh, Twitter, join us on Facebook, Facebook. So the next time you have a situation where someone is getting, you know, dragged across uh, the, the mud for something uh, that they said, even if it's not a First Amendment issue, even if it's just like something that happened to uh, Dave Weigel, for, for example, the Washington Post, um, he was immediately suspended for retweeting uh, a joke. Now, uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of a blue joke, and I can see how it might have been offensive. Not suspended from Twitter, suspended yeah. from the Washington Post. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this was, so this was in the context of there was a study saying that a record number of young women self identify as bisexual, uh, but also only have sex with men. Like, like, like a large percentage of them only have sex with men. And this, people were kind of making fun of this fact to a degree. Um, because that doesn't really sound like someone is actually bisexual. Um, and he retweeted a joke that was saying, well, you know, all women are really, uh, are really bi, uh, either, uh, bisexual or bipolar offensive okay um yep. but a joke um and one of the things that, that these companies are doing is they want their reporters to have a personality online because it brings people in and and, and uh it grows their twitter followers they, they want them to push the envelope a bit but they immediately suspended him and now he's leaving the post he's like that's it i, I i've completely had it and when you have a number of people out there going hey like just a little bit more of like come on like like Really, does someone actually have to get fired over, you know, uh, retweeting a joke? Is, is that the kind of country you want to be? I think having more allies in place, more regular people willing to raise their hand and say, I don't think this person should be arrested for what they said. I don't think this person should be banned from protesting. And also, by the way, like, 
when people just keep on getting fired for giving their honest opinion from regular, you know, for-profit companies, is that really good for democracy? So building that that group is, is some of the stuff I'm the most excited for. I'm willing to bet some of your listeners uh, feel very strongly about freedom of speech. I hope you'll, you know, hope you'll join us. Hope you'll sign up and, and follow what we're doing because it's innovative, interesting stuff. And we want to preserve uh, free speech for the next generation and get people excited about it. So we should acknowledge that there are some limits, right? There's some categories of speech that are not encompassed within the First Amendment. They're not considered protected speech legally. You know, those are categories like defamation, uh, uh, real threats, true threats, uh, obscenity. There, there are categories of speech that aren't protected and that by the First Amendment at all. Yep, Uh, absolutely. And 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 by the way, we largely like our position overall is we uh, we largely agree with the court uh, on on the exceptions that they found. We think they actually. Uh, mostly make a great deal of sense, right? So, so, so this idea—one of the one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings—and I think this is mostly on the right of the concept of free speech—is that you just have a blanket right to say whatever you want, wherever you want, uh, reg- regardless, right? This is this right. is when you see people on Twitter who've been kicked off saying, you know, that they have their First Amendment rights have been violated when in fact that's right. not true, and the First Amendment no, works the true. other direction, right? Yeah, because these are private <laughs> entities. Twitter has First Amendment rights, right? Twitter has First Amendment rights. It's a private company; yeah. they can do what they want with the users on their platform and the way they moderate content. And we'll get to content yep. moderation in a minute, but uh, but we should acknowledge that right up front. Um, oh, absolutely. So this, yeah. so this and, and, I, and I can yeah. I can pass through those like really right. quick. I mean, th- threats aren't protected. Harassment's not protected. Obs- um, obscenity as, as defined by, you know, hardcore pornography, you, you can limit to a great degree. You know, things that are designed to keep children from being exposed to, uh, you know, sexual images, uh, th- those are usually upheld. Um, we actually, and that's the thing, when, when people sometimes say free speech absolutist, you know, we take that as a compliment, but at the same time, kind of nobody actually is completely a free speech absolutist. I'm an opinion absolutist, though. And if you're just expressing your opinion, um, it's valuable. And here's the thing. It's valuable for society to know what your opinion is, not even if it's nuts or weird or troubling, especially if so. We have to understand what people are really thinking if we have any hope of understanding what the country actually looks like. With that as a, as a backdrop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say then to the people? And I think this is, the, this is, this is a common refrain from the left. What do you say mm-hmm. to people who say, well, actually what we're seeing, um, you know, whether there are people who say cancel culture doesn't exist, right? That's not, it's not really happening. But there are also people who say, well, cancel culture is actually a good thing, right? And yeah. what we're seeing is uh, the consequences for bad speech or bad ideas. Yes, you have a right to say what you want, and you are not immune from the consequences, whatever those may be, uh, if people want to shout you down and, uh, and cancel you, right? What do you say... Uh, to, to, to those people, and how does a classical liberal society protect mm. its foundation of free expression uh, when the information landscape right, has become sort of unrecognizable and when you have, when you have this, uh, this growing idea that, um, that actually it's good to squash speech yeah. in, in that way? Um, and I think this gets at the distinction and the, and the real, really like the third pillar of your of your expansion, which is this cultural change, right? This cultural recognition, because there's a difference between free speech culture and free speech law. So th- that's what I'd love you to tease apart. What do you say to those people? What is the, oh, the, 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 yeah. the, the, the those are three such big topics that I could talk about all hours. So I'll start with the first one. 
the idea that there's no council culture, there's consequence culture. I'm sorry, I have our time. Like, I, I feel like all, that usually comes from people who haven't really looked at the cases very well. Um, but also it begs the question. It's, it's saying, it's like, so if you're assuming that, that it's accountability or it's consequence culture, you're assuming that that means this person deserved to get punished. Um, which uh, is a presumption you shouldn't be making, particularly if you look at the cases. You, uh, you, you, uh, I wrote a book on learning liberty that's overwhelmingly, that came out in 2012. The biggest case in that one um, was a guy who was protesting a parking garage for, for environmentalist reasons. He was kicked out of school because he, um, in order to make fun of the president for saying this was part of his legacy, he did a collage on Facebook, um, which referred to it as the President Zachariah Memorial Parking Garage, um, because he literally the president had said like, this will be my legacy. And he's like, that's pathetic. Um, and, uh, the president we found out from the litigation had been like demanding that we, uh, that they punish this student way before he did this because he was undermining his, his, his parking garage. And this is a Valdosta state college in Southern, Southern Georgia. Um, and when we found the documents, it's kind of, it was kind of amazing to watch it. Cause it basically seemed like everybody on staff was like, sir, you can't do that. You can't, <laughs> you can't kick this kid out. No, it's, we were bound by the first amendment. You really can't do this. And he, when he saw the, the parking garage thing, he's like, oh, memorials usually happen when you're dead. So this decorated EMT, Shambhala Buddhist, lefty, you know, environmentalist student was, a, was threatening his life. And they <laughs> slipped a note under his door telling him, you know, to, uh, that you're, uh, you need to get psychologically evaluated. Uh, you, you currently are kicked out of the dorms. You have to get out within 48 hours. And it's like, okay you're trying to say you think this guy is like a potentially going to be like a shooter and you're slipping a note under his door asking him to kindly remove himself from campus immediately got psychological uh, reviews from two people saying he was fine. So like the cases don't look like you think they look um, it, it, it is, is the thing. And, and if you, and as far as I'm concerned, I, I say this a lot because I, I do get frustrated. I mean, I, I'm on the left, but the, um, I want lefties to also care about when conservatives get in trouble. I think what I want them to care about free speech as a principle. But, uh, but if, if it, when I, and I remember having this conversation in San Francisco, um, where, where I, where, where I lived for a long time and I have lovely friends, but at the same time, it's kind of like, listen, if I can't convince you to care about conservatives, then care about the fact that liberals get in trouble all the time on campus. And like, and sometimes it's not even, um, political. It's more like, uh, people think you're harming the brand. That's what happened to Alice Dreger at Northwestern University, for example. She, she ran some, uh, she, there was a, the, there was a magazine, a medical magazine, and she had some articles that were a little little racy a little provocative and they wanted them banned because it would hurt the northwestern brand um like i said they just don't look like i think you think they're going to look um when it comes to when people talk about you know hate speech you you can maybe call some of the cases that you look you look at on campus you could try to make the argument but for the most part it's people um in a situation like for example there was a professor at saint john's university um he was accused of demanding that students defend slavery um, and then then terminated for it. Uh, we have the whole slide deck that he showed. It's an incredible story, history that I didn't know as much about, about how China uh, moving to, I think, a silver standard suddenly needed a tremendous amount of silver that had geopolitical effects that meant Europeans were going all over the world looking for silver. That's why um, they, they, they tortured people in South America, you know, um, building up these, these awful silver mines. Uh, and it, I learned a lot from watching this. And the question, which was not answered, by the way, at the end of this was like, was the Colombian exchange in, in balance worth it? 
that got uncharitably interpreted as you're saying I should defend slavery because that was part of uh, part of the process of the Atlantic. And, and it's like, no, you're actually doing something very deep and responsible and interesting. And he and he was he was suspe- he was fired from St. John's for that. Yeah. I mean, it, it was completely relevant. I mean, they went after Roland Fryer at Harvard. You know, in this case, they were alleging that that there was sexual harassment, which didn't really pan out. But do I have any doubt that's because his research? And that's what's funny. Roland Fryer's research indicated that cops shoot too many people. Uh, um, that the that it wasn't the numbers as far as it being disproportionately African Americans uh, wasn't as pronounced as you as you might have thought. He did find that uh, African Americans were often mishandled or manhandled by police more often. Uh, but the ultimate finding was that the, was that there were large numbers of people, black and white, shot by cops every year. And you know this was something that he was it, he had he felt like he had to retract and make sure that you know uh, some people weren't, weren't using it the wrong way. But then they you know they went after him for harassment that ended up not panning out. Okay. So yeah, it, it's, it, it's a tough situation. I really yeah. want people to like look into the individual cases um, yeah. uh, and, and because it, the, the landscape is not what you think. La- last main thread here, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about social media, especially because uh, I mean, for, for all kinds of reasons, especially because of the, uh, the way you talk about it in, in uh, coddling the American mind, um, the, but but really this this question has been getting a lot of attention in the last couple of years, right? Is whether or not the you know the the the, the public square is now privately held, right, by these tech giants, and um, and we've already we've already addressed the fact that they're private entities that can do what they want, right? It isn't the public square, but it does function in right. that way in 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 a world, right, in a world where uh, <laughs> where. Almost all of our communication happens on the internet, and almost all of the communication on the internet happens on a privately held platform. Um, how do you think about right um, reforming social media platforms? The inability to reform social media platforms, right, because it comes down to a, a lack of real good options, right? Legally, you sort of have a choice between. Uh, two two general directions. Either you require private companies to begin deciding what is acceptable speech, or you have the government step in, which is something that it can't do, right? It is unconstitutional to do, which is probably the reason that there hasn't been much movement at, at the at the at the legislative level around, uh, you know, fixing the social media problem. But I want you to talk a little bit about how you see that moving forward, and um, and and really, I. The, the thing that bothers me the most about what I see on social media and honestly, the reasons that people get uh, deplatformed, as it were, is this nefarious idea that uh, that speech is tantamount to violence. Uh, oh, and, yeah. And this is a, thing, a very old idea, by the a way. Very old idea. Yeah. So can you talk about that idea, how you're seeing that play out on uh, social media and um, with with the caveat that they are fully uh, it, within their rights to moderate their own content, to do what they want on their platforms. Um, talk about that as a cultural piece and how 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 evolving our culture of free speech um, is, I think, fires play toward uh, improving the social media discourse, the dialogue that we're having. There. It is. And, and you know, we're, we, I always talk about epistemic humility, like the idea of like recognizing that you could be wrong on everything um, and that not being, you know, uh, arrogant in, in, in what you believe and being able to shift, um, you know, depending on what evidence tells you. We uh, don't want 
you know, mass regulation of social media, like is being pr- proposed, by the way, on the right and the left. Um, you know, this happened in Texas, happened in Florida, and you, you might have missed it. Gavin Newsom just came out with a bunch uh, in California, just came out with a bunch of uh, transparency uh, laws that we find a, a little a little troubling, particularly since they want to know like how um, uh, social media is policing hate speech. And it says that specifically in the law. Now, that's a little troubling because that's not actually a legal category of unprotected speech. There is no set definition of even what that means. And if you have a social media company that's like, well, we police harassment, we police threats, but we don't police, like, I don't even know what that is. It does seem to be more than a big, a little nudge in in the direction of of police, uh, of of police more speech. So it doesn't stop them from trying. I think the um, Texas one already got an injunction against it. Um, So, uh, it was it was an interesting one that was uh, it was a law that was trying to apply to uh, large social media companies that they had to apply First Amendment standards um, to like who they uh, uh, for kicking people off. Uh, there was I believe there was an injunction against it. Um, it was one of those things that kind of like might sound good uh, initially, but gets a little more troubling as you think about it. Um, and fires hope, and this may be naive, um, but but one thing one thing I don't believe is naive is that if a culture um, doesn't uh, doesn't like free speech, if a culture thinks that free speech is a problem, no amount of social media regulation will fix that. Um, you know, there's there's a great speech by uh, Learned Hand, 1944, that we even did like a, a, a reading of, which he talks about. You know, um, when freedom—I'm uh, going to butcher it—but when freedom dies in people's hearts, you know, nothing can re- resurrect it. Like liberty lives as a habit of, of mind and people, and that's why you end up in a situation where there are plenty of countries that have legal nominal protections of freedom of speech that have no freedom of speech because they don't have a they don't have a cultural they, it's not a cultural value that that that's deeply deeply felt so we believe if we can bolster some of the norm and what do we mean by free speech culture i i think it was very well ref, uh, reflected in old idioms that were more popular when old men like me were i'm 40 i turn 48 tomorrow oh, <laughs> um, uh, well, thank you uh we're kids and you know things like to each their own um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. It's a free country. All of these ideas that, that essentially, um, I don't have to agree with you, you know, um, uh, to, to think you have a right to, 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 to disagree. As my high school government teacher would say, I may be deeply offended by whatever you have to say, but I will defend your right to say it with all, Absolutely. With, with all of my energy. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was a paraphrase, um, of, of Voltaire. It was a, a writer in ni- 1910, I think Evelyn, someone who, who, who came up with the famous, I will defend to the death your right to say it. Um, which, you know, is, is, uh, and like I said, if we can't get people to say like, listen, it's valuable to know what people really think, period. Um, uh, just even listening to them is actually a healthy democratic habit. Um, just really knowing where they're coming from so you can really understand it. The research right now, unfortunately, um, show that when you ask Republicans like what liberals believe and when you ask liberals what Republicans believe, Republicans so far are testing somewhat more accurate, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> which is a little distressing to me that, uh, um, to, to, to at least, to, uh, at least they're pulled, uh, pulled beliefs. So we think that upholding free speech culture rather than heavy handed, um, top down regulation, um, is the way to go to encourage um, uh, uh, social media companies to look at the, the profound wisdom in in, uh, in our great First Amendment jurisprudence that actually gives a roadmap to how do you have free speech, and this is important, in the real world. 
And one of the things that's central to American First Amendment law is this idea of, of viewpoint diverse, of, of viewpoint um, discrimination. That that if you uh, if someone in power uh, says everyone can talk, but this person is, is doomed for their opinion, and this person is going to jail or needs to be fired, that's considered the like the greatest evil um, in First Amendment land. And I think that. Uh, in social media, the idea of being like, listen, you know, like if people are, if you're just talking about people expressing their opinion, it's valuable always to know what people's opinions are. So when it comes to, you know, uh, social media, its overall effect on society, I, I sometimes talk about it's like we're, we're in 1521. Remember how I said it? I, I yeah. did censorship during That's the Tudor right. dynasty. What is the 1521 15, problem? So 1521 is when Henry VIII started policing the printing press. He started demanding that presses had to be licensed by the crown. It had to be someone he approved of running them so it wouldn't run heretical works. Now, this is funny because this is back when Henry VIII was defending Catholicism against Lutheranism and against Protestantism um, within 10 years because he wanted to, you know, uh, uh, marry someone else. Uh, he, he, he completely rejected I want a new that. wife, please. I want a new wife, yeah. But if you look at the uh, perspective of the giant uh, communications, the, the original communications explosion after the development of writing, the printing press, um, how it looked from the point of view of 1521. Uh, the printing press increased the witch trials because the Malficorum, I get, I forget to say, the, the handbook for how, how, like, how do you tell a witch is a witch was a bestseller. Um, it sowed um, a distrust among the people. Um, it led to religious conflict. It led to political conflict. It led to obscenity. So from that perspective, um, this new media didn't probably didn't seem worth it. That's where I feel like we are with social media. We, there is no way, because the printing press added millions of people into the human conversation. Social media added billions of people into the conversation. There's literally no way that could happen without it being scary without it being cacophonous, without it being anarchical, about it being this weird, difficult time. So like, there's, there's no way you can wave a magic wand and make this you know, suddenly not be an issue. It, that, that ship has sailed. It's going to be an anarchical, strange, difficult period when you have that massive swift, uh, shift in media, unlike we've ever experienced before. However, human beings can adapt. And I think that you're seeing a little bit more of it in some cases that, that people, um, I do believe it or not, I see sometimes, I'd say it, good conversations on Twitter. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, like, like thoughtful ones sometimes. <laughs> so I think we need to culturally adapt to it. Um, I think we need um, to get more in the habit of, of, of the tolerant habits of, of freedom of speech. And when there's this top-down attempt to force it, we get very like, uh, uh, one, I'm not sure it's going to work. Uh, and two, um, I'm not sure you have the right to do that. So we might be wrong. It might not be actually the way to fix it. Um, but uh, but I but we'll we'll be, we'll be damned if we're not going to try. Well, the ads are fantastic, Greg. Thank you. And and I and I can't wait to see how this expansion uh, plays out for Fire. Um, before I let you go, well, first of all, I'd like to bookmark, if I could, a conversation with you about comedy. And, uh, and, oh, free speech. Yeah. and perhaps you can come back and we can talk about that. Oh, I'd love that. We, we did a documentary back in 2015 called Can We Take a Joke about threats to the culture change to comedy. And the only thing was we just did it way too early. Um, the, uh, we didn't, the cancel culture wasn't a term that existed. We called it outrage culture because we couldn't figure it out. Um, we, and and the, the threats to comedy and art in general um, from a, a highly conformist moment uh, are, are great.
In fact, I watched that documentary before I even realized you were behind it. And kudos. Oh, nice. Very, very good. Um, So uh, let's bookmark that. And I'd love to do that with you in the future. Um, But before I let you go, where can everybody follow your work, find you on the internet, if you dare to be found on the internet, uh, (laughs) and support FIRE? Okay. Uh, well, uh, we are at thefire.org. Um, we, we weren't early enough in the internet age to just get fire.org, although we keep on offering to, to, to buy that. So thefire.org. Um, we're getting a brand new website. Um, it's going to be uh, much easier to navigate. Um, it will highlight the ridiculous amount of information we have on that. And I mean, it, we have deep research, fascinating articles. We just commissioned it. We, we, we have my, my friend and, and, and hero, Jonathan Rausch, just wrote a piece explaining why uh so nature behavior um decided to put out a statement saying that you know that they w- they will more seriously uh scrutinize um uh research if it's shown to be in, in, in very vague language harmful to groups and it took we decided to go with uh, to ask Roush because as far as explaining what's wrong with that from from a from an epistemological standpoint there's no person better in the world than Roush he, he wrote a beautiful piece about like what that does to the credibility of science, what that actually leads to with the mistakes they're making that are becoming increasingly common. Um, so yeah, the fire.org, we got amazing material. I'm working on a book, uh, follow up to uh, coddling the American mind called, <laughs> uh, and I'm stuck. You know, like I said, I don't love the title, but I'm stuck with it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it's called canceling of the American mind because I'm incredibly creative. Uh, eventually, it, I, I think I'm, it's going to be. I'm going to just write a book called Gerunding of the American <laughs> mind because, because it's just like I'm stuck with it. So my, my, might as well go for it. But but I'm writing that. So Height is doing the foreword for that. Um and uh, that and I always love working with him. He's an awesome guy. Um and Ricky Schlott, who is a 22 year old wunderkind, you know, columnist who is one of the best writers I've run into like in my life. We're, we're co-authoring it. She came to us because she was like, well, I'm experiencing everything that's going as a young woman, Gen Z uh, that's happening in coddling. And we're trying to make a point. One establish that, uh, cancel culture. And I've, 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 I've made my peace with the term, uh, because that's what Americans actually understand. And I want to have all Americans in the conversation, what it actually looks like in the numbers and why you should be so concerned when it affects journalism, science, higher ed, um, because it has bigger ramifications even than for the people whose lives are, are, are harmed. So that, that's the next book I'm working on. Okay. And you're on Twitter? At uh, yeah, at G Lukianoff, if you can spell it, um, it's a, a G L U K I A N O F F. Um, for whatever dumb reason, you're supposed to understand that the I and the A uh, stand for the <laughs> Russian letter Ya. Um, so it's Lukianov. Um, I tried to get my family. Yeah, I, I tried to get my 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 family to change the spelling when I was young, and my sister was like, "But that's the way we've always spelled it." I'm like, "When Dad was born, he spelt it in Cyrillic." <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it was it, it was a it was a French transliteration why well like it, it makes the, the it's we'll, a pretty common we'll save name everybody in, the trouble and we'll link to it as that <laughs> yeah well, it's a pretty common name in ukraine but and and when they come over now they spell l-u-k-y-a-n-o-v which mm. would save me world like tons of trouble <laughs> greg thank you so much for being here this was great i really enjoyed it yeah and i uh, look forward to the next time you're back thank you thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening if you haven't yet We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. 
This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.